this, uh, this, this, we're in a series right now. I'll just tell you what the video would have told you. But we're in a series right now where we're looking at the original Christmas album. There's four songs in the Christmas story of Luke and Matthew. Um, uh, psalms, more than songs. They were lyrical arrangements. They may or may not have been sung, per se. There wasn't a real album. But it, they're these poems that, that characters in the Christmas story read. We're going to look at one today. So this Christmas, um, I, uh, I experienced... Um, and we're doing an advent calendar for the first time with Finn. Anyone done an advent calendar where you have the little boxes and you put stuff in it? And there's like 25, whatever you open up. We're doing our first one. I made a little craft one. We saw it on Instagram. I posted it there. And I was really excited. This is going to be great. We're going to do this, except for December 5th rolled around, and we hadn't opened a single box, and there was absolutely nothing in the boxes. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And so I go, I take my, uh, in the middle of the workday, I take my lunch, I go to Target, I'm looking for little trinkets to put in there, we're not, I'll sell Alyssa out, she's not a huge fan of candy, I'm I'm a little more flexible in that area, but, so, like, maybe some candy, but we have to put some other things other than candy in these boxes, and so I'm going and I'm shopping, and I'm, I'm looking for things that are, you know, cheap, but still not completely crappy, and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm hurrying because there's a hundred other things I should be doing with my time. And by the time I get to the, back to the car, I realize that, that I'm going to be late to my next meeting. And I had this thought, how do parents have time to get anything done? How? Here's what I've learned. The more, the more special something is, the harder someone had to work to make it special. And you just don't realize that as a kid. I remember growing up and just how special Christmas was. But for, for, as a kid... Christmas, it just took forever to come. For adults like my parents at the time, it just gets here way too fast. Why? Because all the kids are doing is waiting. And we're shopping and building and working and filling little boxes. And my dad must have spent hours with these building with his tools, these home these homemade toys and stuff. You just don't appreciate how much work goes into it, just how much work goes into preparing something that's truly truly special. And yet, as important as the preparation is, it's not what you remember. It's essential, but it's not what you hold on to. I remember last year setting up the Christmas tree. I remember putting it in its stand and tightening the bolts and getting it straight. And I remember that. You know what I don't remember? All the furniture I had to move to make room for that tree. I remember putting the lights on the tree even, you know, and like the fresh smell of pine, maybe there's Christmas carols playing. I don't really remember untangling the lights, even though I'm sure that's what I did first because they were absolutely definitely tangled. Um, Whatever the special memory is that you have, there's probably a lot that happened before it to make it special. It's what came before um, that you don't remember that we want to look at today. When you think of the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, it's common to think of nativity. Certainly, you know what a nativity looks like. He's got Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And if you're really, you know, if you're like serious Bible scholar, you put the wise men on the other side of the room. Anyone do that? Anyone know, even know what I'm talking about? That was my mom. You know, because the wise men don't come on Christmas Day. This was her theory. So the wise men had to be on the other side of the room. They were on their way still when Jesus was born. So now you know something you can add to your nativity. Put the wise men somewhere else. But you've got the nativity. And it's great stuff. It's the stuff that Christmas, you know, it's beautiful and it's magical and it's nostalgic. But what we don't think about is all the things that happened before Jesus came. Think of it like this. There are four Gospels that tell us the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they kick off the New Testament. 
They're the stories of Jesus' life. Four Gospels tell us basically the same story of how God entered the world through the person of Jesus. And each Gospel's a little different. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're a little similar, and, and John's kind of his own little character over there. But you've got these four books. They tell essentially the same story. And out of these four books, two of them tell us the Christmas story, Matthew and Luke. Just two. Just two of the four books tell us the story of Jesus' birth. And only Matthew tells the story of the Magi, and only Luke tells us the story of the shepherds. But all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include in their opening chapters of the story of how God broke into this world, the story of John the Baptist. All four Gospels start The story of how God came to earth, not with God or with Jesus, but with this guy named John the Baptist. Luke 1 starts by telling about John's parents. It's interesting, the Christmas story in Luke 1, which is the most expansive Christmas story we've got, doesn't even start with Mary and Joseph or the shepherds or the nativity scene at all. It starts with Zachariah and Elizabeth. And it's Zechariah's song that we're going to look at today. It's the, it's the passage for our lesson today, Zechariah's song. But, but it starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth who become John's parents. Luke 1. Um, so Matthew 3 starts just two chapters into Matthew. It starts with the story of John the Baptist beginning his ministry, which is interesting. It doesn't start with Jesus beginning his ministry. It starts with John beginning his ministry. And Mark 1 also starts chapter 1 of Mark with John the Baptist. Even the Gospel of John, which is the little creative brother of the, th- of the four, um, the, starts with John in the first chapter. John chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. If there was ever a character who was neglected from the Christmas story, it's John. He's not in the nativity scene. His parents don't make it in the nativity, but I think they should be. He isn't, of course, because his story isn't one that's very memorable. His story isn't one where you hang up the lights. It's the story about how the lights get untangled. His story isn't the one about setting up the tree. It's about moving all the furniture out of the room so the tree can be set up. It's not as cute. It's not as memorable. um, But it's just as important. And I think the Gospels would have us think, with all four instances of, of, of starting with him, that you can't really understand the Christmas story unless you understand the birth of John. See, the Gospels, only two of them say, well, you really need to know the Christmas story of Jesus being born. But all four of them say you really need to know the story of John. It's that essential. So today that's what we're going to look at, John. And we're going to start with his origin story, going all the way back to his parents before he was born. You'll find it in Luke chapter 1. But let me summarize part of his story before we get to Zechariah's psalm. Zechariah, John's dad, is a priest, which means he was born into a priestly family. He's a descendant of Aaron. So he's the son of a priest. He's a preacher's kid. And his wife is a preacher's kid as well. So they're both uh, from the family of Aaron and the descendants of Aaron. They are basically these preacher kids. They grew up in Judaism, uh, met each other at some point. They served God together, and uh, they served God in the temple courts. But they, they couldn't have a child in a culture that praised uh, Uh, children above many things, uh, this was often a shame status. And so people would look down on Elizabeth for not being able to have a kid. This is a common theme in the biblical stories. 
They grew old together, still unable to conceive. And then one day, Zechariah's name is drawn at the temple for a special priestly duty. It's so special that they did a drawing because everyone wanted this role. And so Zechariah gets his name drawn. He gets to go into the temple. He gets to do these priestly duties. And uh, while he's serving there, an angel visits him. And the angel tells him, your wife, old that she is, is going to have a baby. Now, they're both very old, so he's like, yeah, right. This is a pretty typical story in Judaism. It's the original story of the family of Israel. It goes all the way back to Abraham and Sarah. They were told also in their old age that they would have a baby. And they laughed. Sarah laughed. It didn't go well for them. Um, But just like them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, in their old age, are going to have a child. Almost as if God is saying, hey, I'm going to take my people all the way back to their roots. I'm restarting from the ground up. A new family is coming into the world. Elizabeth and Zechariah, almost like the new Abraham and Sarah. They're going to give birth in a similar type of story. And this birth would pave the way of this miracle coming into the world. So Zechariah, a priest and a pastor's kid and a good Jew, should know better than to question such a miracle. I mean, it's just this foundational miracle of of the Hebrew faith. But he questions it. And because he does, God says, I'm going to take your voice away until the child is born. So God's like, if you can't say anything nice at all, don't say anything at all for nine months, which makes me wonder if that was just a gift to Elizabeth, you know? I don't know. Would that make pregnancy better or worse? Don't answer that. Um, but on the day their child is finally born, they name the child. And John and Zachariah signs off on the name. The name's going to be John. That's what the angel said the name would be. And it's not a family name, but Zechariah signs off, which is almost a sign of his faith. that This is from God, and God's doing something here really unique. And so he says, yes, the child's name is going to be John. And so he gets his voice back because of that. And the first thing he does is lift up a psalm of praise. Song, maybe, maybe it was sung, but it was lyrical even if it's spoken. A psalm in the style of Old Testament prophets, um, a prayer, but really a prophecy, a word, about, a word from God about who his son would be and the role that his son would play in the Christmas story. So here's what he says, Luke chapter 1, starting all the way at verse 67, 167. You can follow along on the screen as well. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Let's pause there for a second. He's just given us two themes that basically summarize the Christmas story. So let's not gloss over them. Let's spend some time with them. They're essential to the story, and they're worth remembering. The first one is this. The God of Israel would come to his people. We're talking about the incarnation, that God would come and enter into this world and become one of us and suffer like us and feel what we feel and worry like we worry and become overcome by the difficulties of life like we sometimes are. You know, sometimes we put things into categories and we think of school versus work or we think of, you know, home versus church. We think of secular and sacred. Not so much now, but it's been a common trend in society. You've got secular and you've got sacred. And so this is when I pray. This is when I don't think about praying. This is spiritual and this is just normal. 
The incarnation at its heart is this belief that the ultimate supernatural being broke into the mundane natural world and melted the two together. That God took on flesh and was both divine and mundane, both supernatural and natural. Oh, if we could understand the mystery of the incarnation. That God would become like us. That God would see us helpless and broken. And not just show pity on us from afar, but enter into our experience. Fiction writer Madeline Engel uh, explains it like this. She says, there's nothing so secular, secular that it cannot be sacred. And that is one of the deepest messages of the incarnation. No matter how far removed we feel we are from the divine, the incarnation is a story that God will traverse that distance for us and meet us right where we are so that we might be redeemed, which is the second lesson that Zechariah says in his opening words. The, the purpose of the coming of, of God amongst us was to redeem us. Redeem means to buy back. Something has been lost, uh, stolen, or sold. We've all lost or had something stolen or sold, and you go and you find it and you buy it back. The story of Scripture is a story of redemption. We once belonged to life, but sin entered the world, and we were made captives to it. To, to sin and to death. We became slaves to our mistakes and our shortcomings and our fears, our anxieties, uh, and these would kill us long before we even reached the grave. To be redeemed is to transfer our belonging back to God and given the chance to live free again, to live uh, renewed. Zechariah says this is the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is God becoming one of us that we might be set free. And he goes on, sharing some history of why this matters. Verse uh, 69, he goes on and, and gives us a little context. He says, he, he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There was always a remnant waiting for God to come and make things new. They had been constantly taken advantage of and taken captive. The people of Israel were enslaved. And, but they believed one day, just as God promised, God would liberate them from their enemies. And there was always people like Zechariah and Elizabeth who waited for God to come and to buy them back, to redeem them. And that's what was happening now before his very eyes, the birth of Messiah. And the best part was that his son, John, would play an essential part in the story. And here's where Zechariah lets us know what part John would play. Verse uh, 76, and you, my child. You can imagine Zechariah's there. The child's just been born. He's prophesying over them. One, one time uh, uh, after Finn was born, we, we, uh, got him, uh, we got him baptized at our church when we were in Athens. And uh, so I had some family come and visit, which is a really cool thing. And, you know, he's still pretty young, and uh, uh, we baptized him. My brother, uh, Jeff, came. Our brother was always the black sheep of the family and, and is just, whew, he's a lot. And he, he came, though. He drove all the way six hours to my, my son's baptism. And... Uh, he was holding him at one point, and he, uh, he like, prayed over him, like, but, like, it's my brother, so he's, like, prophesying over him. It's, don't worry about it, but he's praying over him, but he, I go up to him, and I say, hey, what was the, what, what was your prayer for my son? And he's like, not for you to know. I was like, 
<laughs> which if you knew my brother, you would find really funny. And I still don't know. Zechariah lets us know. He says, this is what my son is going to be. You, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High and the line of prophets. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Here it is. Here's why all four Gospels start with John the Baptist and why his birth story is the story before Jesus' birth story. He was to prepare the way for the Messiah. The Gospels, they quote from Isaiah 43 and Micah, uh, Malachi 3.1 when they say this. They say, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. I love that. Make the path straight. Get things out of the way. Messiah is coming. Level the path. Clear the path. Fill the low spots up. Cut off the high spots. Make, make the path just right so that the Messiah can enter without any problem. John was the one untangling the lights. He wasn't the light. He didn't get to hang the lights, but he untangled them. He's the one who cleared the path so the tree could be put up. He didn't get to sing the carols. He didn't get to eat the candy, but he prepared the way. John is every parent who gets all of the things ready for Christmas and it just goes unrecognized. He would be the one who got things ready for Jesus. And Jesus would go on to change the world because John cleared the way. This week, uh, Alyssa and I started work on our house. We are gutting and flipping two bathrooms and a number of other rooms. I say we, but we're not doing much of the work. It's, you know, it's a contractor, it's a plumber, it's an electrician. And I'm assuming that, that if they do a good job, which is my hope, um, but if they do a good job and you come over, we have you over, I'd love to have you over uh, at some point, we show you, be like, oh my gosh, wow, what a great job. You, you would recognize the finishes or whatever, you know, you'd be like, this looks good, especially if you saw it before. Probably won't impress you if you didn't see it before. We're not really going big, guys. But if you saw it before, then it'll be impressive. And you'll say, that was a really good job. You know what you won't say? Wow, Joan, Alyssa, good job moving all the furniture so the house could be gutted. Won't even come to mind even though it was really hard. It was surprisingly hard to make room in our house for the real work to be done. That's John. He gets the house ready. He's the one who does the hard work, underappreciated, clearing the space so Jesus can build something beautiful. And here's what that'll look like according to Zechariah's song, verse 77. You'll go on before the Lord and prepare the way for the Lord Quote, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That stuff that needs to be removed and got out of the way so Jesus can act. John had a word for it. Scripture does too. It's called sin. Some churches love to talk about sin. They almost add syllables to it, like sin. Other churches don't mention it much. It's an important thing to talk about. John the Baptist doesn't say much in the Gospels, but he has some really great lines in Luke chapter, I think, 3. I encourage you to read. He has some hard things to say. But he's really summarized in one word, one phrase that he is kind of attributed as like a significant phrase that he uses to clear the way. This is the bulldozer that clears us away for the Messiah, and it's found in Matthew 3, 2. It's simply this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. The Greek word for repent is a combination of a couple of different Greek words. Um, 
a word for um, uh, uh, different, uh, think, and after. So literally, it, it means to change your thinking afterwards. So you do something, you live a certain way, you think maybe at the time it's a good idea, or maybe you know it's a bad idea, which is even harder, but you think it's maybe a good idea, you go through it, and then you look back and you're like, i got to change the way I think about that. That's what it means to repent. When, when I say repent, I think sometimes we think of what it means to, to say, you know, I'm sorry. And, and it doesn't really mean that you're going to say I'm sorry. And I think for, uh, for an important reason. Um, because you can say I'm sorry to someone and not change the way you think about it. Amen? I've done it. You can say I'm sorry and you haven't changed your perspective at all on what you did. But if you've hurt someone, you've done something wrong, and you change the way you think about it, and you admit that was wrong, you're going to say, I'm sorry. That's what it means to repent, to actually change, not just to say the right thing. We've messed up. We've messed up on our own, uh, and we own up to it. And Jesus is coming so that we can think differently about it. So you want to know why John was so important to the opening chapters of the first Gospels. You, you, you can't really understand why God would come and be one, be one with us, or you can't really understand why God would redeem us. You can't really understand the Christmas story unless you first understand, accept, change our thinking on the fact that, friends, there is a problem. Before we surrender to God in Jesus' name, we've got a sin problem, and and we've been thinking about our behavior the wrong way. Sin means to miss the mark. There's a, there's a bold eye, bold, bullseyes, and, and you're aiming for it, but you miss. And unless we can admit that we've missed the mark sometimes, we'll never really understand the Christmas story. Now, some people are uncomfortable talking about sin. Um, but I, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. One is um, because it's been used to really hurt people. I'm going to name that. Two, I think it's because we've sometimes limited what it what it is so it's got it's a word with a lot of baggage it's the type of word that if i preached a lot of, if we did a whole series and it just called sin which by the way is on the docket you know just sin all we're going to talk about them all that's the type of series that there's probably people even here like no nah, i'll just stay home you know i don't not interested but here's the thing that we have to understand about sin because if we remove the baggage from it sin we kind of sit in sin. Imagine you kind of sit in it, you're surrounded by it. We sit in it in three ways. This is overly simplistic, but it, it's a good introduction to understanding what sin is and what, what John was calling us to repent from, to change the way our thinking is. First is, and this is the one that's probably preached fairly often, is we sit in it individually. There are things that we have fallen short of. There are things that we have done, I have done, specifically me, I have done, and things that I have left undone, and I'm personally responsible for those things. The mistakes and then the shame that's a product of it and insecurity and pride that I have and anger and in relationships and towards God. and It's real. It's a thing that I've messed up. It's real. And if it's not dealt with, it'll eat away at me. And if I leave it just to fix it myself, I'm not going to be able to overcome it. The second way that we sit in sin is collectively. Churches, organizations, Communities, uh, nations, cities can sin 
collectively. This one isn't talked about as much, but it's probably the one that's talked about in Scripture the most often. Most often when God calls his people to repent, it's plural. It's the people of Israel. This entire nation together has collectively done something wrong. And it's not just as individuals, it's this collective. We have what we call systemic sin, systemic evil. The way that we organize ourselves and the way that that excludes people, the way that we neglect people, the way that we fund our life together, the way that school systems are built, the way that taxes are organized, all of these are subtle and not so subtle ways that we collectively sin as nations, as communities, as churches. And it's real, and if it's not dealt with, it'll eat at our life together. And if we try to just deal with it ourselves, we won't be able to overcome it. The third one is we sit in sin indirectly. The first two, I think, are talked about. There's some churches that love to talk about individual sin. You've messed up, repent and believe, come to the altar. There's other churches that don't talk about that at all. They just want to talk about how the government's sin or how the, you know, the organization's sin. We, you know, we'll talk about that all day long. I think both are important, but I don't know many that talk about the third one. The third one is we sit in sin indirectly. Scripture in Genesis 3 talks about how the earth was cursed, how sin infiltrated into creation itself. And now we live surrounded by it in a thousand little ways. So sure, we sin individually, and we also can sin collectively, but also sin is just in this world. It, it's, it's just, it's there, uh, in ways that I can't always define or, or, or explain by one person's action or inaction or individual actions. It's just this pervasive nature of sin. And, and, and on our own, we can't overcome it either. So sin, individually, collectively, indirectly, is too pervasive for us to fix on our own. We can't fix it. And maybe that's the part that trips you up. Maybe you think you can Maybe you think, I can fix this if I just try harder, do more, if I email my senator a few more times, if I donate just a little bit more money, if I try a little bit harder. Maybe you're convinced that with just your action alone, you can make things better for you, for your community, for creation. And if that's you, I say, keep trying. It's better than not. But when you become overwhelmed with trying, I hope that you can come back to the fact, come back to who this Jesus is, who can offer to do so much more in and through us because of grace. Here's how Zachariah explains it at the end of his song. He says, because all of this is because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. John pointed out the darkness in our midst, not because he got enjoyment telling people they were sinners, because he wanted people to know that the light was coming. God's light would come like tender mercy. I love that phrase, tender mercy, as if there was any other kind. Tender mercy when we're trying to fix it on our own on how tender and beautiful and powerful God's mercy is. And that mercy would lead us into the path of peace, peace on earth. A world ushered in eventually where there would be no violence. The sheep would lie down with the lion. 
Old Testament passage read at the Advent reading. The kids would play near the serpent's den and not be bitten. All of creation, not just individuals, not just communities, all of creation would be bought back, given a fresh start. Life would be different. And until that day fully comes, God promises to meet us in our prayers and give us through the Holy Spirit a peace that we can't even understand. Philippians says, a peace that surpasses all of our understanding. When you watch your house torn apart, you need to hold on to the hope that it'll get rebuilt better than it was. And I think that's a pretty good metaphor for life. Maybe it's a metaphor for your life, even this season. Maybe there are some things in your life that need to be undone, that need moved out. You know, and some of those things will get put back. Others will not, like my flooring. Looking forward to that not getting put back. Maybe there's some things in your life that just need gutted, tossed away, so that new things can be built up. This is what we find uh, embedded in the great liturgy of our church. There's this jewel of a prayer that's been said in different ways all the way back to the Psalms of David. Uh, I thought as we close, uh, we might say this prayer together. If if the band wants to come and get set up, um, I'm going to put the prayer up, and I'm going to give you a chance to read it and reflect on it, and I'm going to invite you to pray with it. Um, So let's put the prayer up here. Um, As you reflect on it, every line is just another thing that gets uncovered in our life, something that we need to name, not not so we can dwell on it and feel bad about it, but so that we might grab it and toss it out of our home, repent and rethink and to change our mind, to live differently because of it. And when we repent, God promises to forgive us. This is the good news. So I want to give you just a second. Let's take a second and just you can read over it so you know what you're praying. And some of you are going to be very familiar with this. But... um, Think of these as things in your life that we want to toss out this Christmas season. 